Well, we've spoken of this before, but it comes up so often that it bears repeating. Everyone here has probably heard the claims that we're not really sure that Jesus was actually born on December 25th. We don't actually know the real date of our Lord's birth. The reason we celebrate Christmas on the 25th of December is because ancient times this is a pagan feast. And so the church decided that rather than suppressing the pagan feast, it'd be easier just to substitute with a feast of our Lord's birth. Well, that's hogwash. I'll get into great detail on that tomorrow at the 1130 Mass, but we know exactly when our Lord's born. It's an immemorial tradition of the Church in Rome. I'll give the details tomorrow, not tonight. We have gone into a great deal before on why those claims are wrong. But it's really easy to demonstrate. Anyone here can do it. You can just repeat a simple experiment I do almost every year. I called up a good friend of mine who has seven kids, and I asked her three questions. First question, hey, Denise. Do you remember the birthday of your oldest child? Answer. She's laughing, and uh, she answers in one of those tones that means something like, only a man could ask a question that dumb. But since I'm a priest, she's too polite to tell me that. Why, sure I do. Second question. Do you remember the time the child was born? Yes, I do. Third question. Do you remember what the weather was like? Answer, yes, I do. So far, I haven't met a mother that couldn't answer those questions. It's a cinch bet. If I called any one of you moms here, you could each give the same answers to those three questions, right? Of course, what mother could forget the birthday of her eldest child? The Blessed Virgin Mary is the perfect mother. Are we supposed to believe that she forgot when Christ our Lord was born. Does anyone really think that the Blessed Virgin Mary, the Mother of God, forgot? The woman created by God himself to be his mother would forget his birthday? It's a no-brainer. Our Lady knew when Christ was born. St. Peter actually knew Our Lady. The, uh, he went to Rome. The other apostles actually knew Our Lady. St. Luke, whose gospel we just wrote, actually, read from, actually knew Our Lady. So if our Lord hadn't told the apostles, they could just ask Our Lady. One thing's for sure, they didn't make up the date of Christmas just to substitute for some pagan party. There's absolutely no reason to doubt the date of Christmas. Our Lord was born at midnight on December 25th. 2014 years ago today. This is a historical religion. Now that we have the date, let's turn to some other historical matters, which we've heard before, but they bear repeating on this great feast. In his history of Rome, Cassius Dio, now this is a pagan historian, records that in 38 BC, a fountain of oil bubbled up from the ground right in Imperial Rome herself, and that that oil bubbled up in so much from the spring that it actually flowed down into the Tiber River. St. Jerome wrote that the Jewish community in Rome interpreted this as a sign that God's grace would soon flow into the world, that the Jewish community in Rome understood this as a prophecy of the grace that would flow out to all the nations from the Messiah, from the Christ. Remember, Messiah is a Hebrew word, and Christ is the Greek word, which both mean the one anointed with oil. 
So the miraculous flow of oil is also believed to re have reoccurred on the night of Christ's birth. In fact, if you're ever in Rome and you visit the beautiful church of Saint Mar Santa Maria in Trastevere, you look up in the sanctuary on the epistle side, you can see the actual place where that font of oil bubbled up. There's a screen, it's carved out of marble and it sends fons olii. Years ago, the first time I was there, I was standing there going, why would there be a fountain of oil here? I was looking at it going, what does this mean? Because I didn't know about this at the time. But then you look up, and all of a sudden you can see these ancient Latin inscriptions, and there's mosaics of the very event there. And you can figure out what's going on, because you can see the oil running down into the Tiber in the mosaic. Because of that spring of oil, long before the church there was built, this was a meeting spot for the first Roman Catholics. Shortly before our birth, our Lord sent a vision to the Emperor Augustus, the very emperor who ordered the census of the world that brought Our Lady and St. Joseph to Bethlehem on that December night. We just heard about that in tonight's Gospel. In his vision, Augustus Caesar saw a virgin standing at an altar in a dazzling light and holding a baby in her arms. And he heard a voice which said, this is the altar of the Son of God. If you're ever in Rome, you can visit the church of Santa Maria in Aricelli, built on the very site where the emperor had that vision. The scene with the emperor Augustus is actually painted in the arches over the main altar. So in spite of the fact that the world had been in the choking death grip of the ancient serpent, our Lord sends on signs ahead to the nations to herald his coming. I could give you many more, but I don't want to keep you here that long. Let's take a closer look at the details surrounding the birth of our Lord. We'll follow the Gospel and we'll make some remarks on the way. The Gospel of St. Luke, chapter 2. And it came to pass that in those days there went out a decree from Caesar Augustus that the whole world should be enrolled. This enrolling was first made by Serenius, the governor of Syria. And all went to be enrolled, everyone into his own city. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, out of the city of Nazareth, into Judea to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and family of David, to be enrolled with Mary's espoused wife, who was with child. And it came to pass that when they were there, her days were accomplished, that she should be delivered, and she brought forth her firstborn son. So we'll pause and take a moment to talk about just how she brought forth her firstborn son. St. Augustine summarizes the teaching of the church here, and I quote from the great doctor. She was a virgin before the birth, during the birth and after the birth. Close quote, St. Augustine, Bishop, Father, and Doctor of the Church. The great Thomistic theologian, Father Reginald Garrigou Lagrange, merely echoes St. Augustine when he states the teaching of the Church regarding Our Lady's perpetual virginity. And I quote, the Church teaches three truths concerning Mary's virginity, that she was a virgin in conceiving our Savior, that she was a virgin in giving him birth, and that she remained a virgin her whole life through." Close quote. As if there were still any doubt, the Lateran Council in 649 under Pope St. Martin taught infallibly, quote, if anyone does not properly and truly confess in accord with the Holy Fathers, that in the true and proper sense, the Holy Mother of God and ever-Virgin Immaculate Mary in this last age, not with human seed, but of the Holy Spirit, properly and truly conceived the divine word himself, who was born of God the Father before all ages, and that she gave him birth without any detriment to her virginity, which remained inviolable even after his birth, let him be anathema." Close quote. So what does all this mean with regard to how Our Lady gave birth to our Lord? 
It means in the first place that just as Christ on Easter Sunday passed through the sealed tomb without opening it, remember the angels opened it up later on, so now he passes out of the womb of his mother and into the world without depriving her of her virginity. We should also keep in mind that because of her immaculate conception, Our Lady was spared the punishment of suffering pains during childbirth, which is briefly explained by the great father and doctor of the church, St. Gregory of Nyssa, and I quote from him. His mother's burden was light, the birth immaculate, the delivery without pain, the nativity without defilement. For as Eve, who by her guilt engrafted death into her nature, was condemned to bring forth in pain, it was fitting that she who brought life into the world, Our Lady, would accomplish her delivery with joy. Close quote. It is the constant, uninterrupted tradition that when Our Lord was born, Our Lord passed out of her like light through a window pane, and that Our Lady's delivery was totally painless. The teaching of the Catechism of the Council of Trent makes this clear. I quote, The conception of the Savior is above all the laws of nature, and his birth is no less so. It is divine. And what is absolutely astounding, what surpasses every thought and every word, is that he was born of his mother without causing the least injury or virginity. Just as later on he left his tomb without breaking the seal which closed it, or just as he entered the house, the doors being shut, where the disciples were gathered, or to take a comparison from ordinary happenings, just as the rays of the sun passed through the crystal without breaking or damaging it, so too, but in an ineffably more marvelous manner, Jesus Christ left the womb of his mother without in the least violating her virginity. We are therefore perfectly right in honoring her a perpetual virginity and a perfect integrity. Close quote the Catechism of the Council of Trent. So the points we want to take away from this are first, the perpetual virginity of Our Lady, which means Our Lady was a virgin in conceiving our Savior. She is a virgin in giving him birth, a birth which, as we heard, was itself miraculous, and she remained a virgin through her whole life through. Second, because of her immaculate conception, Our Lady suffered no pain whatsoever in bringing forth our Lord. But dear mothers, sometimes they take umbrage from this. It's true that she didn't suffer any pain in bringing forth our Lord, but she suffered unspeakable pains in giving spiritual birth to all the rest of us, which is what happened at the foot of the cross when she cooperated with her son in bringing forth the church. Okay, so her suffering has no suffering to compare from it. She was spared in the birth of her Lord, but she wasn't spared anything in the birth of the church. And as we have pointed out before on the first Saturdays, we are actually making communions of reparation for certain offenses and blasphemies committed against the Immaculate Heart of Mary, including blasphemies against her Mac conception, like stating that Our Lady suffered pain during childbirth, or blasphemies against her perpetual virginity. Now, given the catastrophic state of catechesis over the past 40 or 50 years, it's sad, but not too surprising, that many Catholics might have fallen into these errors. And besides the terrible catechesis, many Catholics may have well picked up these horrifically blasphemous ideas by innocently watching the movie The Nativity Story and other blasphemous filth in this genre. Let's return to the Gospel. Luke 7, 7, And she brought forth her firstborn son and wrapped him up in swaddling clothes. Those swaddling clothes are still in existence. In the year 786, Charlemagne built a chapel. It's the Palatine Chapel. It's now part of the cathedral in Aachen. And he placed many important relics from the Holy Land in Rome in that chapel, 
and included in the swaddling clothes of the baby Jesus. On the website of the cathedral, you can see a picture of the swaddling clothes. Returning to the gospel. And she brought forth her firstborn son and wrapped him up in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. St. Justin Martyr, he was a native of Palestine. He was born within 40 miles of Bethlehem in the year 100, just about the time that St. John the Apostle died. So here we have a man who's a witness to the belief of the earliest Christians in and around Bethlehem, the neighborhood in which he comes from, many of whom had known and heard the preaching of the apostles themselves. St. Justin Martyr wrote, quote, Since Joseph could not find any lodging in the village, he took up his quarters in a certain cave near the village, and it was while they were there that Mary gave birth to the Christ and laid him in a manger. Close quote. In the year 132, the Emperor Hadrian desecrated the holy places by building pagan shrines over each one of them. But as one author points out, this serves the useful purpose of making, marking the holy places very precisely until the end of the persecutions and the liberation of the church by Constantine in the year 313. That great doctor of the church, the Venerable Bede, he lived from the late 600s to the 700s, also notes that on that first Christmas night, right there in the cave that was being used as a stable, a miraculous spring of water began to flow, which was still visible in his day. St. Jerome, who from 386 to 420 for 34 full years, lived and studied in a cave in Bethlehem, close to the cave in which our Lord was born, also writes of the manger. I quote from the great Dr. St. Jerome, I too, miserable sinner that I am, have been accounted worthy to kiss the manger in which the Lord cried as a babe. In the year 640, the Muslim armies captured Jerusalem and the surrounding territory. During the reign of Pope Theodore I, he himself was a native of Jerusalem, and he ruled, uh, he was in the papacy from 642 to 649. Some relics from the cave were brought to Rome for safekeeping. These were five boards made of sycamore wood that had been part of the manger. They're now in a beautiful reliquary um, in the crypt under the main altar of the Basilica St. Mary Major in Rome. If you ever go there, they're easy to see. The reliquary is this big, beautiful silver and gold. It's kind of a bowl-shaped thing. It's got a lid which has a really beautiful statue of the Christ child leaning a little bit over on his left side with his right hand up to give a blessing. So this little chubby little statue of the Christ child, he's, he's blessing you. And there's crystal windows in the reliquary, and you can look through those windows and see the boards from the manger. It's really easy to see them. It's right under the main altar at, at St. Mary Major, so you could go right there. What about the ox and the ass? St. Jerome, St. Gregory Nazianz, and St. Gregory Nyssa, all fathers and doctors of the church, state that the prophecy of Isaiah about the ox knowing his owner and the ass knowing his master's crib was literally fulfilled that night in the stable as both an ox and an ass looked down upon the creator of heaven and earth, our little Lord Jesus, all wrapped up in swaddling clothes and lying in the manger, just as we see in our scene here. Returning to the gospel, Luke 7, 8, and there were in that same country shepherds watching and keeping the night watches over their flock. Both Genesis 35, 21 and Micah 4, 8 speak of a watchtower near Bethlehem that was used by shepherds to keep watch over the flocks. It's called the flock tower. An ancient Jewish commentary on this very passage, Genesis 35, 21, records the belief that the Messiah was to be revealed from that very tower near Bethlehem the flock tower. 
Of course, the fact that the Messiah was to be born in Bethlehem was clearly prophesied in the Old Testament. In fact, some 800 years before our Lord's birth, the prophet Micah speaks clearly about the small village of Bethlehem. Quote, And thou, Bethlehem Ephrata, art a little one among the thousands of Judah. Out of thee shall he come forth unto me that is to be the ruler in Israel, and his going forth is from the beginning, from the days of eternity. Close quote. Now, in this regard, we'll read a few fascinating passages from a commentary written about 150, 160 years ago by a rabbinic student who later became an Anglican minister. So this is a, uh, was a Jew that, that converted to Anglicanism. And I quote, Jewish tradition may here prove both illustrative and helpful. That the Messiah was to be born in Bethlehem was a settled conviction. Equally so was the belief that he's to be revealed from Migdal Eder, the tower of the flock. This Migdal Eder was not the watchtower for ordinary flocks, which pastured on the barren sheep ground beyond Bethlehem, but lay close to the town on the road to Jerusalem. The flocks which pastured there were destined for temple sacrifices. Accordingly, the shepherds who watched over them were not ordinary shepherds. These flocks lay out all the year round. Thus, Jewish tradition in some dim manner apprehended the first revelation of the Messiah from that watchtower, where shepherds watched the temple flocks all the year round. Of the deep symbolic significance of such a coincidence, it is needless to speak. It was then on that wintry night of the 25th of December that shepherds watched the flocks destined for sacrificial services in the very place consecrated by tradition as that where the Messiah was to be first revealed. Close quote, Alfred Eidersheim. In other words, the Jews actually expected the Messiah to be revealed at that precise place. And St. Jerome, who, as we've just heard, actually lived there, confirms that indeed that was exactly the place where the angel announced to the shepherds the tidings of great joy. St. Helena, the mother of Constantine, built a church, the Church of the Holy Angels, on that very site. Returning to the Gospel, Luke 2, 9 and following. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood by them, and the brightness of God shone round about them, and they feared with a great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy that shall be all the people. For this day is born to you a Savior who is Christ the Lord in the city of David. And this shall be a sign unto you. You shall find an infant wrapped in swaddling clothes and laid in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly army praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, on earth peace to men of goodwill. So who was the angel that announced the shepherds the good tidings of great joy of the birth of the Savior Lord, Christ our Lord? The fathers and doctors of the church tell us it's the archangel Gabriel. Cornelius de Lapide states that Archangel Gabriel was a special angel of the Incarnation, assigned by God to make all the solemn announcements connected with the birth of our Lord, starting with the prophecies of the Incarnation given some five centuries before to the prophet Daniel. Why was there suddenly a whole host of other angels present? The fathers teach that each nation has its own guardian angel. And his main job is to guide the people of that nation in the ways of holiness and righteousness. And the fathers also teach that before the coming of Christ, the Gentile nations increasingly rejected the knowledge of the true God, which they had learned from their ancestor Noah. And because of this rejection of God, the guardian angels of those nations had a terrible time just trying to prevent their people from falling farther and farther into sin, idolatry, and outright devil worship. 
So on that cold, quiet Christmas night in Bethlehem, when the guardian angels of the nations saw the little Lord Jesus wrapped in swaddling clothes and laid in the manger, they immediately realized that their Lord and God had stooped down to earth and come to the aid of not only the Hebrew people, but to the aid of all the nations on the earth, that he had come to help his angels, that he'd come to make it finally possible to turn their poor, confused people away from the road to hell and onto the path of righteousness. And so when the guardian angels of the nations, when the guardian angels of our ancestors realized all that, they gathered in that brilliant choir in the dark, starry sky over Bethlehem, and they broke the stillness of that quiet Christmas night with their joyous song of thanksgiving, praising God for stooping down to earth to help his angels and men. So you have the angels of God astonished and overjoyed and thankful that the Lord himself would come as a babe to save us, poor, miserable, sinful men. And so we can picture the whole scene, the world in the dead of night, in the dark of winter, lying there choked in the darkness of sin. Well, over the night sky in Bethlehem, the angels sing with joy. The shepherds are kneeling close by St. Joseph and Our Lady. The ox and the ass are looking on, and our little Lord Jesus is lying in the manger. God became man to save us. The Word became flesh to dwell amongst us. Tonight, let's unite ourselves in a spirit of profound thanksgiving to this holy sacrifice. Thanksgiving to such a good God who became a little bitty baby to save poor, miserable, sinful men like ourselves from hurtling into hell. A good God who's shown us the path of righteousness by giving us this priceless gift of the true faith, the faith without which it is impossible to please him. Tonight, let's turn to little baby Jesus and thank him for this wonderful gift of faith and beg him for the grace to live and to die in the holy faith. And during this holy Christmas season, let's really try to keep that prayer in our heart, the prayer sung out by the guardian angels of the nations. Glory to God in the highest, and peace on earth to men of goodwill. Merry Christmas.